Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Estonia's capital has free public transportation. Paris wants it too. We'll consider the possibility of a free CTA. A huge restoration effort is underway in our forests. We'll discuss the benefits of connecting with our restored forest preserves. And West African Desert Blues has seen growing popularity. On Global Notes, I'll talk with the founder of the blog-turned-record label, Sahel Sounds. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. This year, I had the chance to talk with the new mayor of Montreal, Valerie Plant. She had just ousted the incumbent mayor, and her political party is called Project Montreal. They're a bunch of urban planner sustainability types who formed a political party, and their winning signature issue in the mayor's race was more public transportation. During my campaign, I was talking about the pink line, which is a new subway line to really give more options for citizens. But also I see as a public transport to me as a way to develop economic and social life. So there has to be more investment on that front. There are movements in lots of cities to reinvigorate public transportation. One of the tools Montreal and Paris is looking at is some form of free public transportation. John Greenfield has written about the issue in Streets Blog Chicago, where he is editor and the reader, where he writes the transportation column. Nice to see you. Have you, John? Good to be here. And also with us is James Porter. He's a Streets Blog reporter, a lifelong Chatham resident who doesn't own a car, an expert <laughs> in navigating the CTA. More power to you, James. How you doing? Um, I, I'm, I'm interested in the whole idea of this um, public transportation. There seem to be so many reasons to uh, have free public transportation. John, tick off what is so attractive about it to, to people in cities now. Well, you know, the the person who really started this conversation was community activist Jamal Cole, who uh, recently appeared at a panel on segregation at the Metropolitan Planning Council, which uh, James reported on. James, you want to talk about that a little? Uh, yes. Uh, I uh, recently attended the conference that he uh, held, and he just bl- – I asked him point blank, you know, what was – since he has a – he has a he had a program where he takes high school students around to uh, different parts of the city, you know, past the west, the west side, the south side where they're living and just like explores the city. You know, so I asked him with, with all this exploring, what do you think of the CTA? And he just flat out said, I think it should be free. And it must have struck a nerve because when he said that the whole room broke into applause. And um, so, yes, uh, he went on to say that of all the big ideas, I think it should be free. Quote, I should say, quote, out of all the big ideas, I think it should be free and it should be extended. I used to ride the red line every day. It's like the aorta of Chicago. It changes so fast. You go from Chinatown to 47th, 63rd, 69th, 79th, 87th, 95th. I would definitely make it extended farther than 95th Street and I would make it cheaper to ride. That's exactly what he said. So he basically wants it to break down barriers for people in communities. Yes, that would be correct. 
uh, it, it ha- does, but there's economic things too. There's uh, a lot of people who want to change congestion situations. There's there's a laundry list of things. Yeah, you know, when people first hear the idea of free transit, it might seem like kind of this bleeding heart liberal idea. But I think even if you're a fiscal conservative, there's a lot of reasons why you might get behind this idea. Um, you know, transit connects people with job opportunities, educational opportunities, helps people get to uh, preventive health care appointments. And, uh, you know, having lots of people in a city who are not well-educated, not employed, not healthy is very expensive for society. So if we can improve those outcomes, everyone's going to save money. And then, of course, having a car, car-centric car transportation system is also very expensive because we have congestion, pollution, crashes. So we're talking about lost productivity. Uh, we're talking about first responder bills, you know, police and ambulances showing up to crashes. We're talking about wear and tear on roads. And uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration did a study a few years ago where they found that um, crashes cost the United States $871 billion per year in economic and societal costs. So if we uh, take Chicago's share of that, that would come to about $7.3 billion. So if we can reduce the amount of crashes, we could save a lot of money in Chicago. And coaxing people out of cars and onto CTA buses and trains would be a way to do that. Is there a lot of energy around the public transportation issue right now, James? Do you think that there, that things have changed and people, um, you know, are ready to spontaneously break out in applause <laughs> for for public transit and things like that? Uh, well, speaking from my gut, I don't think the venture card has exactly done favors for the Chicago Transit Authority. Um, it has uh, it's it's a, it's a little it's a little bit slightly more expensive than uh, the the. The, the the transit cards we had before, and I've noticed this more than once. I mean, I guess because there's no way if you're taking the bus as opposed to the train, there's no way to check how much money you have left on your given card. And I've seen this happen more than once where I've been like on a long line, you know, for a train, and it's like for a bus, excuse me. It'll be maybe three people in front of me, and all three people have just now noticed that their card, you know, has expired. You know, whereas with the previous cards, at least it lasted longer. And I think it's a very big problem considering that to get any – Chicago is set up so to get anywhere, you know, it would take like maybe, you know, at the at the most like maybe three bus transfers, which isn't as long as it seems on paper, you know. And, and it was it was actually you know, quite convenient, you know, with the prior transfer systems. But um, the venture kind of put a monkey wrench in that plan. John Greenfield? Yeah, James, one thing we were talking about is in terms of the venture card and equity – you know, we're on the subject of should the CTA be cheaper, should it be more affordable for low-income folks in Chicago, is with the Venture Card, you do get $5 ridership credit. You know, if you buy the card for $5, you get that returned right. when you register the card. But um, a lot of people might not be aware of that, or people might have limited internet access and have trouble doing that, so they never get their $5 back. And then if you don't get a Venture Card, it's $3 for each paper ticket that you buy to ride the L train. Right. You still use cash in the buses. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that means uh, you're, you're basically wasting 50 cents. So lower income folks who might not have that $5 up front to buy the card are buying you know multiple $3 rides and wasting money on that. So that's certainly not equitable. 
Is there a crisis in public transportation in the in the city of Chicago in some ways? Uh, it seems like train ridership is okay, but bus ridership is just going down. And it seems like ride share and bikes are taking market share from uh, basically buses. Uh, from uh, 2015 to 2016, bus ridership fell uh, 15 million rides. It's dropped 21% since 2008. People don't want to be on the bus. They're, they're, they're looking for alternatives. Well, what's really scary is, uh, you know, bus ridership has been falling constantly, uh, consistently in the last few years. But train ridership had been rising, um, you know, with the, the rise of transit-oriented development and more people moving to the city who want to take trains to work. But in recent months, CTA train ridership has actually dropped. And that has been widely blamed on the rise of ride-hailing, Uber and Lyft. So I think city council did something smart um, last year, which was pass a new tax on uh, ride-hailing trips to fund CTA infrastructure. So, uh, you know, that adds somewhere around 50 cents this year to the the trips. And uh, that's going to help level the playing field for transit and help mitigate the negative effects of ride-hailing. I'm talking with John Greenfield and James Porter from the Streets blog Chicago, and we're talking about the idea of free public transportation in Chicago. All right. I mean, that's a little piece of the pie, but like right now in Chicago, is it true that the CTA is funded like half up by by rider fees? And that's – is that the law right now? It's been the law for 70 years. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, CTA policy, and, and this, is, this is higher than in uh, other peer transportation systems, I believe. But um, the state law that's been around for decades is that the CTA has to pay for 50% of its operating expenses and, through fare box like revenue. $1.3 or something like that? Uh, the CTA budget for 2018 is $1.51 billion dollars. So okay, so that's kind of like the big sticking point with 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 uh, Jamal's idea of free transit, is okay if we don't charge people to ride the CTA to cover the current CTA budget, we would need about seven hundred and fifty million dollars a year. So a lot of people might say, well, that's nuts. Where are you going to get that money from? Are you just going to not cover that and let service get worse and ridership drop? And uh, no, you know what we want to do is just shift our priorities. Um, In the state budget deal last summer, they actually cut funding for the CTA and other local transit agencies, which is why fares went up this year. So, um, you know, if we have political will, we can do stuff like this. Uh, Audrey Winnick from the Metropolitan Planning Council, which hosted that panel, um, she said, you know, if, if we have the political will, we can move the state budget to spend less money on highways and more on transit. Um, you know, other ideas she brought up was instituting a tax on employers with, say, more than 10 employees to help fund transit, which is what they do in Paris, which covers 42 percent of their operating budget. They got great transit there. Um, and a, another – a few other ideas that Audrey threw out is uh, having a re- reduced fare card. Um, in the Seattle area, they've got something called the Orca Lift card, which provides $1.50 uh, rides for uh, – low-income folks. And in Portland, they have fare capping so that if you take multiple rides in a day, paying one by one, you're never going to pay more than the equivalent fare card. Now, the the place that is the golden example of all this free transportation is the capital of Estonia, who has been doing it for a while. Uh, how do they fund it? How does it work out there? Well, that's a very good question. Um, 
the way it works is residents of that city, it's, uh, forgive me if I'm pronouncing it wrong, but it, I think Hell it's yeah. Tallinn, Estonia. It's a city of about 450 million people. And so they passed free transit several years ago. And the catch is you have to be a resident. So this has encouraged people to move in from the region, from other parts of the region, to live in the city. And uh, city officials say that that has resulted in a $25 million increase in uh, income tax. So that has more than covered the $15 million loss in fare box revenue, which has actually allowed them to expand transit service to meet the demand. All right. So let's think about this. The city of Chicago is bleeding people, right? Yes. <laughs> so, so if uh, we wanted to attract people and we offered free public transit, it would bring more people in to live here or keep them here and uh, might help defer some of the costs. Realistically speaking, if not, if not free transit, at least reduced rate. I mean, I have heard a lot of people from out of town uh, say that Chicago's public transit is really is really together. I mean, they like the fact that, you know, you can still you can be carless and still have a social life. You don't necessarily have to rely on, you know, being on wheels all the time. Yet, by the same token, as somebody as a lifelong Chicago resident, I mean, I do feel that there are some there's still some steps, some, some steps need to be taken, you know, to uh, change it. So we're having this discussion. James, one thing I wanted to ask you is. You you probably ride the L system more than any other Chicagoan <laughs> I know. You really get a, a, all over the city. Okay. Um, so Joe Schwederman, he's a professor of transportation at DePaul University. And so when I brought up Jamal's idea of free transit, um, he thought it was a terrible idea because he thought that if transit was a free resource, people would abuse it. Right. And people are already concerned about, like, cleanliness issues and crime issues on the CTA. And he thought that free transit would exacerbate it. What, what's your opinion on that? Well, um, I'd say reduced rates because kind of like you just said, I mean, it's like it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, yes, free. I mean, Jamal kind of had a point. I mean, but then again, it's kind of be taken as one of those things like, you know, if, if wishes were planes, then the whole town would be an airport, you know, I mean, <laughs> but realistically, I mean, I think that if we know it's not going to happen, but I mean, I, I think that realistically um, lowered rates would probably help the situation better. And there are lots of cities who do the seniors and students thing, uh, lots of places. And low income is something Montreal is talking about. Uh, right now, uh, the CTA, what is it? 29% of the people who ride the CTA are low income. Um, that'd be a pretty big break to give them a big break. But um, It seems like an exaggeration, but I mean, it's almost like it, we shouldn't have to turn over an entire paycheck just to ride the train from one end of the town to another. And sometimes on a bad day, that's the way it seems. Well, that's a good point that um, UIC's uh, Great Cities Institute brought up when I was researching. Uh, uh, the last thing I did on this sort of inspired by James's article, I did a column for the Chicago Reader looking closer at the idea of free transit. And uh, Great Cities Institute did some work with the Active Transportation Alliance. And they did a map that shows the percentage of your income that you would need to spend to get a uh, one year's worth of CTA monthly passes um, if you live in a particular neighborhood. So it costs uh, $1,260 for a year of CTA ridership for the passes. And, uh, you know, in cities like – in parts of like River North, it's only a small fraction of people's income. People are pretty affluent. Yeah. But in Little Village, they found that buying a year of transit would cost 11.6% of the average resident's income. And in the Altgeld Gardens area, it would be 
15%, which is a major financial burden. Man, that's a lot. Yeah, it certainly seems like there's something afoot here. I, what, what would you hope would happen next? Huh. Well, I hope what happened. I can hope, but I pr- might not come true. <laughs> I'm hoping that, I mean, I really... Because I, I ride the uh, Metra every day, and they're going on a different model. Increase the fares, reduce the service. Death spiral. <laughs> uh, yes, I wrote them. I had to take the Metra over the weekend, and I was astonished at how um, how much the price jumped up since I last took it. But uh, yes, uh, how would I solve it? I may have to double back to what I'd said earlier. Some kind of like reduced fares, you know, compounded by the fact that as far as I know, there is no Ventra fan club. I know good and well that uh, that the Ventra that the use of the Ventra car may have cramped a lot of people's styles as far as like getting around the city, and uh, like I said, some kind of like you know a reduced fare, you know, some kind of special car, some kind of special system that would like you know simplify the whole deal. James Porter is a streets blog Chicago reporter and a lifelong expert on navigating the CTA. Thank you for joining us. And John Greenfield is a transportation columnist at The Reader and editor of Streets Blog Chicago. He's been writing about the idea of should the CTA be free. Uh, we'll, we'll look forward to more to come. Thanks, Jerome. Thank you. People really like nature. We'll discuss the benefits of connecting with nature that's close to home after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Most people live lives isolated from nature, but they don't have to. Cook County has some of the greatest plant diversity of any part of the country, and there's plenty of access to it. We're going to get psyched about the warm weather that is for sure someday coming and get re-engaged with the outdoors with some friends from the Cook County Forest Preserves. With me is Eileen Fiegel, Deputy General Superintendent for the Forest Preserves of Cook County. Great to meet you. Great to be here. And with me is Laura. Um, I am blanking on your your name. Rarika. Rarika. Laura Rarika Anchor. She is wildlife management biologist for the Forest Preserves of Cook County, and she's co-author of Flora of the Chicago Region: A Floristic and Ecological Synthesis. It is a magisterial work detailing the region's 3,200 plant species and their connections with insects and the environment. Thanks a lot for joining us, Laura. Thank you. Um, I wanted to talk, um, first of all, about uh, the forest preserves as a resource for people in this region. It's um, something we don't think a lot. A lot of people think about Lake Michigan, but they don't necessarily jump and say, well, the forest preserves is another great natural resource that we have. It is. We have, I think, those two natural resources that are so important to the quality of the life. Lake Michigan is celebrated and known far and wide, and the forest preserves have not gotten their fair due. And 
they are very different from Lake Michigan, but they are equally as magnificent and important to the region. Now, a lot of people may not know this, but the forest forest preserves have a plan, a very detailed plan, and it's called the Next Century Plan. And um, it's a very ambitious remake of the forest preserves. It's really to preserve them for future generations and make them really terrific. Can you tell us a little about where the plan came from and who was doing it? Because it's kind of uh, a unique uh, proposition. So the Next Century Conservation Plan um, was created a couple of years ago as the Forest Preserve was approaching our 100th anniversary. If you think back 100 years ago, Chicago is the fastest growing city in the country. And a group of civic leaders realized if we don't do something, we will lose all the native woodlands, prairies in the entire region. So they built this support to create the forest preserves. And for 100 years, we did what we what they thought needed to be done. We bought land and we protected it from development. But about in 1970, we began to realize that really wasn't enough. You couldn't just protect it from development. There were all kinds of invasive species literally choking out the native plants, and we needed to restore the land. So as we approached our anniversary, once again, a group of civic leaders was convened to think about what does it look like over the next 100 years, and what will it take to restore these forest preserves to health and to make them more welcoming. So a commission was convened to create this plan, charged with the president of Cook County, Tony Preckwinkle. She charged them with answering those two questions. They laid out their answers in this very, very broad visionary document called the Next Century Conservation Plan, and it really sets out four primary goals. Don't just protect, but also restore the nature, welcome all the people and make it more accessible to all our residents, create this broad public awareness of the value of the forest preserves, not just to the regional economy, but to our quality of life, and then create this enduring leadership that will make sure that we are using all the public dollars that we get in a very, very responsible, effective way, and that we get the resources we needed to meet these really bold, ambitious plans. I think one of the things most people are probably seeing now in their forest preserves is the restoration effort move forward. And it's really exciting. And I go to Deer Grove Forest Preserve all the time, which has had a huge uh, transformation. And it's beautiful. And there is so much more life and uh, so many different uh, varieties of plants now. Um, Are we uh, really seeing the forest preserves revealed to us for the first time? They aren't really what, Laura, we don't have really forests, do we? This is not a place where there was traditionally forests in the past. It was something a little different, and that's what's being revealed. Um, Much of our um, forest habitat is along rivers, um, but at the Deer Grove property in Palatine, uh, it's primarily open woodland and savanna habitat, oak savanna habitat. um, Nearly 400 species of plants occur there, many that are extremely rare at the southern portion of their geographic range being more uh, boreal in affinity to the north, Um, both wetland and uh, more terrestrial species. And so it's an extremely rich area. Um, One of the sites, the Deer Grove West property that we are managing, has revealed to us the fecundity of the site. it's uh, plants that were we would have to walk, you know, hundreds of feet in order to um, enjoy the biodiversity. Now it's um, an entire carpet of 
vascular herbaceous plants, which is just incredible. Um, much of the um, hillsides that were leading or feeding into the creek or leading into the creeks are now vegetated. So it's it's really quite amazing. And and springtime is the best time to go to the forest preserves. I think I always enjoy the most. The the spring flowers come up and. Uh, you really begin to see the, the the spring carpet of flowers. It's a terrific thing. Oh, especially um, right now, our spring ephemerals will begin to bloom in about two to, two to three weeks. Hopefully, um, with our 70-degree day on Friday, we might start to get um, spring beauty possibly blooming, <laughs> which is very common there. Um, it, you wrote this gigantic book. Uh, it's fourteen hundred pages. You detailed all thirty-two hundred plant species in this whole region. Um, when we visit a forest preserve, and we we're just trying to get to know a few, and mm-hmm. I, I have a friend who's a steward at one of the forest preserves at Deer Grove, and he says, "Well, you get to know a few plant species, and they become your friends, and then you get a few more friends, and then you learn." I mean, we're not all going to get to all thirty-two hundred plant species in this region, but um, there's there's some way to clue into how nature's working out there when you're in the forest preserves. Exactly, because these are ecosystems that we're looking at, um, especially about, you know, with the Deer Grove West property, that's a remnant. It's largely remnant. And essentially what that means is that the area was not disturbed um, by man, you know, by uh, agriculture, etc. And so... It's a it's an extremely rich resource, and for Cook County as a whole, from the work that we did in this book, seventy six percent of the plant species that occur in the twenty two county region that we studied um, live in Cook County in the forest preserves largely, and so as a whole, the forest preserves of Cook County are an incredibly rich biologic resource, um, not not only for plants but also for animals, largely the insects, because plants are the substrate upon which biodiversity sits. And in this uh, book where you, there, there are 3,200 plant species, you did the part where you talked about what insects are um, uh, related to those species of plants. And I was, I was on the phone with you earlier, and we talked to I, – I thought, did you get a head start on that? Isn't there anybody who's kind of checked that out before? But you did it all you know, on straight observation. Yes. Um, so every single um, – record of an insect in the book is is directly from a specimen um, gleaned from the field. Uh, and then a uh, great study from looking at the plants, trying to understand what was going on. Because plants, it's, uh, plants are not here just for our enjoyment. Uh, you know, a beautiful flower, um, they have evolved uh, as complex systems um, to where um, other species depend on them either for um, lecking uh, stages or where insects mate, for example, or for food resource, whether it be via phloem or leaf tissue or nectar or pollen. And so there's a, just a diverse array. Not only that, but the plants themselves contribute to the organic matter content, which is very important because the majority of our insects live below grade or in the soil. Um, in fact, 70% of our native bees live in the soil. I don't think most people really understand bees. When people talk about them in the media, there's a lot of discussion about bees being under threat and uh, these hives dying off. But really, what people in the media are talking about usually are industrial bees. They're uh, the imported bees that are kind of like cattle themselves being brought around to an, an orchard or something to, to do the fertilization. But the um, 
the native bees, there's 450 native bees in this area, and most all of them are digging little holes in the ground. Yes, um, th- the majority are soil nesting, but we do have cavity nesters and uh, some that live in wood. Um, but we have an extremely rich resource, many that are conservative to high-quality natural areas such as prairies, woodlands, um, such as savannas and forests. Uh, and it's extremely important for us to understand. And that was one of the, the primary reasons why we wanted to include the insects um, as a testimony that it's not just about the plants. We wanted people to understand and have a deeper appreciation of the biologic diversity and integrity still extant here in Cook County. And in the region. And so the infrastructure then works up to, say, birds who feed their exactly. young with the, with the insects. Absolutely. All of it is connected, and that is the food chain. And so from its most uh, smallest entity to its largest, um, it's, we're all a part of it, including us. We're talking with Laura Rorica Anker, and she is a wildlife management biologist at the Forest Preserve District of Cook County. And Eileen Fiegel is here, Deputy General Superintendent for the Forest Preserves of Cook County. Um, the access issue that the Forest Preserves have had over the years, um, there seems to be um, a real effort to change things. There are campgrounds now. Is it five campgrounds? There are five campgrounds. And people can go camping in the forest preserves now. And the one I mentioned earlier, Deer Grove, is one of them. But um, there's a bunch of others uh, all throughout the region. Uh, Dan Beard in Northbrook, uh, Shabona Woods in South Holland, Oak Forest has Sullivan. So there's a bunch of places people can go camp, hang out in the woods at night and walk around. That's super cool. It is super cool. And it's the second part of our mission. So Restoring and protecting nature is part, and then welcoming people to nature. And, you know, hopefully everyone will learn to appreciate the biodiversity that Laura just outlined, but it'll take a while for people to get there, and you have to invite them in and meet them where they are. And so there has been this effort to really look at how do we welcome more people in and connect them to nature. And we now have 300 miles of trails. We have the five campgrounds you mentioned. We have six nature centers that have been refurbished. We have programs and activities throughout the forest preserves that are very family-friendly. And virtually all of it is free. It is a really, really good, good deal. I think a lot of people who want to get more involved and learn about nature uh, would benefit and the forest preserves benefit from all the volunteers, stewards who go out and um, clear out the invasives. And that's how you learn about plants and figure out which is which and uh, go out with other people and talk about it and see what's what and start figuring it out. And and the forest preserves have embraced the stewards and, and have stewards all over the place and they're looking for more. The plan talks about getting lots more. It does. The plan calls for really, really a massive ramp up in our restoration efforts. So right now we have about 9,000 acres that are actively being restored and managed. The volunteers play a critical role in that, especially in maintaining the land that's already been restored. The goal is to get to 30,000 acres, which means literally thousands of volunteers doing restoration work. So that is a key part of the plan. And people can find out at their local forest preserves. Usually there's a sign up in the forest mm-hmm. preserve that says, hey, come join us and, and you know, help restore this forest preserve. And on our website. <laughs> and your website is uh, f- fpdcc.com. 
That's terrific. Um, what it sounds like one of the things I didn't mention about the goals of the Forest Preserve is um, uh, you're going to acquire land too. You're going to grow. That is a, a big one. So the plan calls for us to grow from uh, just under 70,000 acres to 90,000 acres. So that would be um, a little over 20,000 additional acres. It is by far the primary cost driver of the plan, which makes it the biggest challenge. So there is a a real debate right now on how we grow. Uh, The land acquisition money that the Forest Preserves has used is, is largely depleted. So to succeed in that goal will require more resources. It's a pretty tricky thing, but I know um, people do occasionally donate land, and there are moments where uh, corporations and things get involved and want to help out too. That and the other role we really look to is if a really great piece of property became available and was threatened with development and we did not have the resources to acquire it, we would work with open space advocates and partners and see if perhaps one of them could acquire it and hold it until the Forest Preserves did have the resources, because once it's developed, it really is gone forever. Well, I hope people get enthusiastic about the Forest Preserves, get out there and enjoy them. It's a super resource, and I enjoy going to them all the time. Eileen Fiegel is Deputy General Superintendent of the Forest Preserves of Cook County, and Laura Rorica Anker is Wildlife Management Biologist for the Forest Preserves of Cook County, and she is a co-author of the magisterial book Flora of the Chicago Region, A Floristic and Ecological Synthesis, 3,200 Plant Species and Their Insect Friends. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us and good luck. I understand you're working on bees after this. Yes, um, I've been working on bees and uh, and that will be the next publication. We're also going to have keys. I'm working with Rob Jean in Indiana on this project, so um, we're very excited. Um, that sounds terrific and I look forward to the bees. Uh, take care and uh, we'll see you soon in the forest preserves. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we'll listen to a little music from West Africa. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music, and today we're going to explore the desert blues sounds of West Africa. With me is Christopher Kirkley. He's the founder of Sahel Sounds. He is an explorer, musical archivist, artist, curator. Thanks for joining us, Christopher Kirkley. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, tell us who we were listening to there. You're, this is your, your buddy. You travel the country with him. You make movies. What, what, who is That's he? That's right. Uh, yeah, that was Imdu Mokhtar with uh, his track Susum Temeshek. And uh, Imdu's a guitarist from Agadez in Niger who plays in that 
in that Tuareg uh, blues tradition. It's uh, terrific music. It really sounds great. Um, how did, yeah. <laughs> how did you get into this? You, you seem to have had some kind of Alex Lomax type uh, moment where you decided you were going to uh, go out there and record people. Yeah, I, I kind of just stumbled into it on a on a whim. Really, I I became really fascinated by music in that part of the world, and uh, decided to sort of just hit the road and uh, and check it out for myself. Uh, and so I was traveling with a with a guitar of my own uh, to to learn about the music and uh, and a small digital recorder. And uh, I spent about two years sort of traipsing around the. The Sahara uh, of Mali and, and Niger and uh, Mauritania, and uh, and collecting music and meeting musicians and just really getting to know the place, but uh, via this language of music. It sounds like you've really struck up a special relationship with Mdu Mokhtar. You you travel with him when he tours here. You uh, produce movies with him. You direct movies with him. Yeah, I think. I think Mdu was a, a. I mean, I like to get to know a lot of the people that I'm I'm working with, uh, but with Mdu in particular, he's this uh, very larger than life uh, personality, and and so we've had a lot of opportunities to work on music, but uh, but when I I've pitched him other ideas too, and say like let's work on a film together as well, or let's uh, let's do a, a crazy tour and and he's he's into these ideas so it, it makes it easier to uh, to to come from a, a similar place and uh, now, on this now we've got a clip from uh, one the movie you made with M do and this was a remake of purple rain uh, the the prince movie that's that's right uh yeah he wanted to not, do not this. A, not a likely remake maybe but <laughs> he wanted to do this this was uh, something that like uh, appealed to him well, I, I wish I could say that was the case. This is definitely something that came from 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 my brain in some, <laughs> in some manner. Uh, spending a lot of time hanging out in these weddings and uh, and and just seeing the similarity, you know, this competition of musicians trying to trying to make it, and uh, and so uh, so I pitched the idea to Mdu, and he watched the film and and said, let's let's make a movie. All right, here's a little of Mdu Mokhtar in, in the, the rain, the color of blue with a little red in it because they don't have the word for purple in, in this language. Uh, thanks. Here, let's check it out. And that's a clip from Rain, the Color of Blue with a Little Red in It, the uh, movie you made with Mdu Mokhtar, Christopher Kirkley from Sahel Sounds. Um, what, what, um, what, how has technology kind of changed and driven your operation? Well, you know, the, when I was first traveling around there it's about 10 years ago, uh, there wasn't a lot of internet at the time. And, and people were uh, did have smartphones, uh, or usually knockoff sort of bootleg smartphones, and they were trading a lot of digital music, but they weren't on the internet. So it, it, traveling back and forth, I really had to be on the ground uh, in order to 
to talk to people and to get sounds. And I think over the past couple of years, there's been a lot more internet, and musicians are all on uh, all on Facebook. Uh, for better or worse, right? And uh, and and a lot more people are actually on uh, using WhatsApp as well. Uh, this great app to uh, transmit these vocal messages and and send sound clips back and forth. So suddenly, I've I found myself inundated by uh, musicians contacting me, sort of out of the blue, and getting numbers from from uh, their friends and over this this network of people uh, sending me sending me songs and. It's made my work uh, quite a lot easier to to operate and and be in constant communication with that part of the world. So your blog essentially developed with some of these sounds. You, you were putting um, music out there in your blog, and that became your your record label. Yeah, I, I think at the outset the idea was really to travel around and uh, and sort of document my my own experiences uh, via field recordings. So it was. Uh, it was sort of a, a music travel blog in a way, and uh, and over the years, I've I've almost stepped back in some ways to just be a platform for musicians to showcase the stuff that they're working on, and uh, and have less of a, a a role as a as a as a collector and, and more of that curatorial role. And uh, the record label is definitely a big part of that. I think uh, we do primarily vinyl records, but uh, uh, working as a record label, we have a we have a commercial line as well. Uh, so we have we have music that we're releasing, and it provides opportunities for these artists to uh, get some financial uh, uh, effect from from their music and find opportunities to tour. So we work a lot with artists too uh, to. To really help them to develop their careers as well. All right, we're going to hear a song from another one of your artists, Lace Fields de Ilarada, uh, and Radad, and uh, the song we're going to hear is Eras Milan. Listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and I'm talking with Christopher Kirkley, the founder of Sahel Sounds, and we're listening to some of the musicians he collaborates with. That group right there, it sounds like it is a girl group, Les Fields de Iliradad, and uh, who are they? Yeah, that's right. So, La Fide Iliradad is uh, fronted by uh, Fatusi Dirali, and uh, she's uh, one of the only two uh, female guitarists. 
and the Tuareg community. So uh, it's it's pretty remarkable. Uh, she's uh, she was somebody that I, I found via her, her cousin who I was working with, who had sent me her photo. And so I said, well, we have to we have to go meet her. And she lives way out in the country. Like, I mean, it's just miles and miles over a dirt road to get out to her, her village. And uh, but she had picked up a acoustic guitar that her brother had brought back from a, a voyage in uh, in Libya, I believe. And uh, over the years, she had, she had learned to play. But she the really interesting thing is she's combining this this music that's typically a male dominated uh, form of guitar music in the community, and she's combining it with uh, traditional tende music, which is a a, a female dominated music. Uh, this traditional drumming, which you heard in that in that track, so she's taking these traditional village songs and adapting them to the guitar, and uh, and for the and there's really amazing results. Uh, what what has it meant for her to be a recording artist? Did she um, did she move? Did she tour? Did she um, get notoriety? It's it's huge. I mean, it, I I think a lot of times we talk about these there's world music artists. And they follow uh, a career of, you know, moving to this big cities and recording and releasing things. And over time, maybe they'll, they'll start touring. But with, with Fatu, you know, she was in the village and uh, suddenly she had a, a European tour uh, maybe a, a year later. So it was a very quick uh, change. It was a really big culture shock. But uh, it's but she's still there. She's still living in the village, and now she's sort of navigating these these two different worlds. Um, let's hear another track. And the artist we're going to hear now is Amanar De Kidal, and uh, he's got an album, uh, Tumastin, and this is the title track. <laughs> Aminar De Kidal, and he is an uh, artist that's on Sahel Sounds, and we're talking with the uh, founder of Sahel Sounds, Christopher Kirkley. Uh, tell us a little about him. So, uh, the um, Aminar is Ahmed Akaidi, a musician from the north of Mali in this town called Kidal, and uh, you know he's he was really this uh, central band of of the city of Kidal, and. Uh, in the past few years, there's been this conflict in the north of Mali, and the the band became sort of dispersed across Algeria and 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 through Bamako and Burkina Faso, and they they were all spread out. and And Ahmed is uh, has a, 
essentially been ceased to play music in the north of Mali uh, during that time, and uh, and and is now traveling around. He plays shows in in the in the capital to the south, but he's had a really uh, rough time, I think, uh, with this uh, this ban on music that happened in the north of Mali. But uh, but his songs now he's really composing a lot to to really use music as a as a means of transmitting this message of peace and collaborating with other ethnic groups in Mali to to really address this problem. Um, what's your goal in the future with Sahel Sounds? It seems like there's um, a lovely uh, renaissance period for global music and people can share sounds so easily now. It's and people ha- and you're in the middle of a, a sound that's very appealing to people. Yeah, well, you know, the music is is really amazing, amazing, and and, and it's what drew me to this part of the world. Uh, and I think now more than ever we have a chance to learn more about it, and uh, it's important for me to let listeners also have the opportunity that I've had and uh, and get more context uh, and being more involved with the artists and and technology has really opened up this possibility to have more collaboration and have more of an artist input. So for the future of Sahel Sounds, I see it more of a collective, an artist collective, an artist-driven project where we can engage more in this conversation. Uh, Christopher Kirkley is the founder of Sahel Sounds, and you can see his friend Mdu Makdar at the Old Town School of Folk Music on June 6th. So that'll be terrific, and I'll look forward to seeing him there. Thanks a lot for joining us, Christopher Kirkley. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tomorrow on World Deal, we'll meet a Rohingya family who's been resettled to Chicago. Hope you can join us then. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to World Deal on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.